This week on Geek Explained, it's part three of Joketober, an entire month dedicated to the Clown Prince of Crime. And this week, we're diving into the world of video games, specifically one series that not only featured the Joker, but put him front and center at the heart of the story. So join us as we recount the evolution of John Doe to the Joker in Batman the Telltale Series. Welcome back to Geek Explain, the podcast for comics, film, TV, and more. You name it, we explain it. I'm your host, Eric Gazana, and we are knee deep in Joketober, an entire month dedicated to the Joker. Uh, last couple weeks have been really, really great. Last week we did a full-on review, spoiler-filled, of the new Joker movie starring Joaquin Phoenix, directed by Todd Phillips. And the week before that we did a full retrospective on Batman Beyond Return of the Joker. This week we're going to be talking about video games, specifically the narrative-driven story of Batman the Telltale series. We're going to be covering both Season 1 and Season 2 more so season two than season one because season two is really where the Joker was born and you get to see the metamorphosis from the uh, really enthusiastic and slightly naive John Doe into the Joker that we all know and love or a completely different version of the Joker that we don't know but we end up falling in love with. Also this week, we have the weekly review kicking off Season 8, the final go-home season of Arrow before Crisis on Infinite Earths uh, later on this year. Uh, we also have this week's comics countdown as well. But before we get into all of that, we got a lot to talk about. Let's jump into this week's news. guys and gals so we've got some news for you today before we jump into our main uh, topic for the episode and uh, of course we have our four categories we have film news tv news comic news and miscellaneous so i'm going to get to them pretty much all in order which might just be a first in uh, geek explain history sometimes we uh i guess most of the time we pretty much just jump around from topic to cop to uh, topic, you know, depending on what's what we've got going on for each uh, each category. But this week, this week we're going to go in order. And first off, we have in film news. We're going to talk about film news first. And to start us off, we got some big DC news. Starting off with the casting, we have an official DC casting for Selena Kyle, Catwoman. She has been officially casted for Matt Reeves' Batman film that is going to be uh, apparently beginning uh, filming in January of 2020. So they're ramping up real quick. So we should expect more uh, casting stuff to be coming out in the uh, in the coming weeks. But Selena Kyle has been cast, and it is going to be Zoe Kravitz. Big fan of Zoe Kravitz. I really really like her. She's uh, 
just from everything that I've seen her in. Uh, she's been fantastic. She also has uh, experience with the Selena Kyle character, seeing as how she also voiced Selena Kyle, Catwoman, in uh, the Lego Batman movie. <laughs> uh, she's actually had uh, quite a lot of voiceover stuff, which, as a voiceover actor, is pretty exciting. Um, including uh, voicing Mary Jane Watson in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, or I guess she would at that point be Mary Jane Parker. But I... I'm excited about this. I think it's a great choice. Um, I did see that other... Apparently the final four for the casting were uh, Zoe Kravitz, Ana de Armas, which you may have seen in um, in Blade Runner 2049. I thought she killed it. Ella Belinsky, and she is going to be in the Charlie's Angels reboot, as well as Aza Gonzalez, who is just too perfect. For that role. She was also in Baby Driver, which was, I think, the first role that I saw her in. But as I said on Twitter, like, with that final four, there really was no wrong choice. I think I am least familiar with Ella Belinsky, uh, just because I'm not really familiar with her stuff, but any of them. They all look the part, they all would have done fantastic, but as it stands, I think Zoe Kravitz is going to do an incredible job. Um, she's just, she's a great actress, a great choice, a great pick just for, I guess, the aesthetic that Matt Reeves is going for. And I think she's going to fit in really well with um, Robert Pattinson's Batman, with Pattinson, if you will. And it's actually really funny because if you remember, uh, Zoe Kravitz's stepfather, Jason Momoa, plays Aquaman for Warner Brothers. So I'm, I am positive there's going to be no crossover with that. But I think that's a really cool and... Uh, Odd little uh, fun fact there. We also got uh, some set photos from Suicide Squad, which has officially started uh, production. Uh, and we saw a little bit here. We saw, um, I believe it was uh, Nathan Fillion and um, Flula Borg. Um, there's one more uh, person that I recognize. There's a couple more, actually. Um, it was... Oh, I'm going to have to vamp here and look up this stuff. But um, what I thought was really interesting was they're actually like filming outside stuff. Uh, so the actors that we did see on hand uh, were, like I said, uh, Nathan Fillion, who apparently, as far as we know, is going to be playing Arm Falloff Boy, which is such a weird choice, but I think it's hilarious. I still would have preferred him to be playing Clayface, but, you know, James Gunn uh, has a vision for this kind of stuff, and he is going to, I'm sure, do incredibly well. We also got to see Pete Davison as Savant, Possibly. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what character he's playing, but he definitely looks the part for the savant character. We also saw Flula Borg, who is going to be playing Javelin, as well as, um, let me see here. I don't know the actress's name. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, da, 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 da. I can't. It doesn't say her name anywhere, but she's going to be playing Mongal, which is the daughter of Mongol. Um, she's probably going to be, it's still probably going to be pronounced Mongol, but who knows. Uh, and then we saw my boy. We saw my boy Captain Boomerang, played by Jai Courtney. Um, I'm nervous, 
having him with these characters because you can tell that all these characters are kind of in there to be red shirts uh, with maybe the exception of Nathan Fillion because he is, uh, I think he's higher profile when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, so seeing my boy Captain Boomerang with these red shirts really bothers me and really worries me. But I do like that a lot of these characters have that... Um, have that what's it called that uh, Guardians of the Galaxy feel because we also got to see Weasel uh, being played by of course James Gunn's brother Sean Gunn doing motion capture again playing Weasel so we have like a really like tongue-in-cheek uh, making fun of Guardians of the Galaxy team here for the Suicide Squad uh, I'm hoping Captain Boomerang makes it through because I'm pretty sure not Pretty sure all of these guys are going to get their heads blown off in one way or another. But um, here's here's hoping, because uh, Captain Boomerang, he deserves to be there until the end. So that does it for uh, film news. Moving on to TV news, we got some big news for Marvel's Hellstrom series, which despite the cancellation of Ghost Rider, is still going ahead. Uh, Hulu and Marvel TV are still, uh, I guess, working on this towards the whole Midnight Suns endgame. Um, I'm not sure exactly where Ghost Rider would have fallen in with this, especially now that his show isn't going anymore, with rumors that uh, Kevin Feige is going to be making a film with him. Who knows? But we did get a at least a main cast for this announced. Uh, this is includes actors such as Tom Austin, Sidney Lemon, Elizabeth Marvel, it's uh, funny, Marvel, uh, Robert Wisdom, June Carroll, Ariana Guerra, Guerra, I mispronounced her name and I apologize, and Elaine Yui, or Ui, God, I mispronounced your name as well, and I apologize. And uh, this is slated to debut in 2020, so they've got to be uh, filming pretty soon here. So, um, of course, as the... Uh, I'm looking at the official uh, press release for this, and it says, Marvel's Hellstrom centers around Damon and Anna Hellstrom, the son and daughter of a mysterious and powerful serial killer. The siblings have a complicated dynamic as they track down the terrorizing worst of humanity, each with their attitude and skills. Uh... Tom Austin is going to play Damon, the one of the leads, while uh, Sidney Lemon is also going to play the other lead, his sister Anna. Um, we're, we don't have a whole lot to go off with this announcement. Uh, these actors seem really good. Um, I've heard the names before, so they're definitely going for at least established TV stars. So uh, this should be interesting. Diving into the occult and the darker, more supernatural stuff of uh, the Marvel U is always a good time, so I'm looking forward to it. But the big news this week is going into Crisis on Infinite Earths. Of course, we've been covering it every single week in the countdown to Crisis. And uh, we got some more stuff this week. First off, we got... Uh, the possibility that Lucifer is going to be showing up. For those of you who don't know, he is part of the CWDC 
family, uh, all being helmed by Mark Guggenheim and um, and Greg Berlanti, of course. And I'm interested to see because he is, you know, this is an adaptation of the uh, DC comic of the same name, the Vertigo comic, mind you. But uh, I think it's really interesting, especially if you toss in characters like Constantine, uh, how he might fit into this. We also got a big throwback because we got a set photo featuring Burt Ward, who played Robin in the Batman 1966 television series alongside Adam West as Batman. Uh, so we might, we're going to get a cameo from Burt Ward. Uh, no telling on whether he's going to be playing his his world's version of Dick Grayson, possibly retired or not, but I'm, I'm looking forward to this. This could be good. Uh, we also got... The first uh, official look of Pariah. I'm really excited about this. Um, Pariah was a mainstay in the Christ on Infinite Earths book. He was basically a character from a parallel Earth who was forced to watch as every Earth in the multiverse was destroyed by the Anti-Monitor. And I, I think this is fantastic. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, he is going to be played by a familiar actor as well that actor being of course because he has to have every single role uh tom cavanaugh so this is going to be another version of harrison wells uh playing pariah here i'm looking forward to it the costume looks spot on as an adaptation and kind of a modern change-up of Pariah's costume from the comic event. And uh, we also got a big uh, cast photo that was released from the set that included and was really our first look at Tom Cavanaugh as Pariah. But I'm looking forward to this. This is going to be really good. But the big news, the big, 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 big news is that a set photo alongside the set photos that Brandon Routh has been putting up, alongside the big cast set photo that we saw of everybody on the Wave Rider, we got a specific photo. A photo that was taken on set of a newspaper clipping that read, uh, Billionaire Bruce Wayne set to wed socialite Selena Kyle. Now, this might not be anything major to you just from the sound of that. But the photo that they chose to feature on the front of this newspaper accompanying this news story might interest you because it was a very specific billionaire Bruce Wayne, that being Keaton. We're talking Keaton. The Keaton Batman might show up in this movie. In this movie, in this crossover, Michael Keaton's Batman is iconic. Michael Keaton's Batman is what really kicked off the interest in modern day Marvel or uh, modern day comic book films. And I include the late '80s into all of this because where would we be without Batman '89, Batman Returns, Batman Forever, Batman and Robin? All of that stuff, as bad as it got near the end, really pushed forward and kept the genre of the comic book film. Uh, franchise alive until it was picked up in a more successful realm today now if michael keaton's bruce wayne at some point appears here somehow somehow i will flip a table i'm just going to do it it's just going to happen but i am so freaking excited about this um i just 
it's amazing. It really, truly is amazing. So that is the TV news. Jumping into comics news. A couple stuff we want to definitely cover here. Um, The Batman The Last Night on Earth book by uh, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo has been fantastic. It is their love letter to the character and is also the final chapter in their Batman saga. Uh, The first two issues are out. The third issue, however, has been pushed back from its initially solicited release date of November 13th to December 18th. So it's been delayed five weeks. Uh, This sucks because I love this book. It's been really good so far. However... Uh, Scott Snyder and Greg Capullo did comment on the matter uh, because both of them were tapped to participate in Spawn number 300, which came out this past August. They were both tapped to contribute to that. Um, So it kind of messed up their schedule, and rather than try to rush uh, their product out... They opted to take a couple extra weeks to make sure they got everything perfect. They want the uh, quality to be as high as possible, and I can't fault them for that because I want this book to be as good as possible, and I think with them working on the book and taking the extra time to make sure it is absolutely perfect, we are going to get an incredible finale to this story. So delayed about five weeks, but I think we'll uh, we'll survive. December is going to be a big month for DC for sure. And then we also got on the Marvel side two new books announced, all take all releasing in 2020. First off, we have. I think this was a long time coming. This is the first Avengers Defenders book in a very long time. Not the Defenders, the modern day version as we come to know them, but the Defenders as they were originally created, also called the non-team of the Hulk, Silver Surfer, Namor, Valkyrie, and Doctor Strange. They were the original Defenders way back when this team was first created. And we are getting another Avengers Defenders book that we haven't had in a very long time. This one called Avengers Defenders Tarot. And it is going to be written by Alan Davis with art by Paul Renaud. Uh, the synopsis goes a little like this. An all-new epic adventure teaming the classic Earth's Mightiest Heroes with Marvel's premier non-team by Alan Davis and Paul Renaud. A strange and impossible lost memory from his days in World War II draws Namor the Submariner to his one-time compatriot Captain America. But the two heroes and their respective allies find themselves pulled into a labyrinth of pain, destruction, and madness, courtesy of the infernal Ikor of Ish-Lazag. So it's not really clear where in the timeline this book is going to take place. Um, It seems like it's not going to be the modern day because just from the cover that was released with the press release, the lineup of the Avengers is Captain America, Scarlet Witch, Iron Man, Thor, and the Vision, which is very um, kind of heading into West Coast Avengers slash New Avengers past when uh, everybody kind of left and Cap was left to rebuild the team with Avengers like Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver. But it's a weird, um, interesting, I think, place in the timeline because we do also have uh, the modern um, costume design for Valkyrie, but at the same time we have the old school costume designs for Iron Man, uh, Vision, 
Thor and Scarlet Witch. Captain America looks the same. Hulk looks the same. Uh, Silver Surfer and Namor, of course, look the same. And Doctor Strange is timeless. So you can't really tell. But I'm interested. I like the Alan Davis-Paul Renaud team, and I'm looking forward to it. But the book that I'm really looking forward to is Hawkeye Freefall. Hawkeye is getting another solo series, and I'm excited about it. Um, it is going to be coming out also in 2020, written by Matthew Rosenberg with art by Otto Schmidt. I love Otto Schmidt's art. Uh, if you are, if the name sounds familiar, he was the lead artist on the Green Arrow Rebirth book for most of the book. He is fantastic. His art style is wonderful, and I cannot believe he is jumping back into Marvel with another archer. Uh, the synopsis for this book goes a little like this. When a mysterious and ruthless new Ronin starts tearing a destructive path through the city, suspicion immediately falls on Hawkeye, but Clint has more to worry about than who's wearing his old costume. After a clash with the Hood ends badly, Hawkeye gives himself a new mission that will place him in the crosshairs of one of New York's most dangerous villains. Hawkeye's mission and Ronin's secret plans will set them on a collision course that only one of them will walk away from. This is going to be a limited series of five issues, but I'm really excited about it. Matthew Rosenberg, we'd been waiting to see what he would do next after his Uncanny X-Men run ended to pave the way for Dawn of X. And um, I think this is a great landing spot for him. I am I believe the last time he wrote him was during the uh, Tales of Suspense book, where uh, Hawkeye starred alongside of uh, Winter Soldier Bucky Barnes. And I loved the way that he wrote Hawkeye in that book, and I'm excited to pick this book up. So that does it for comic book news. Now for miscellaneous news, miscellaneous news is going to be a little bit more uh, self-focused because I had a big week this past week. A lot of stuff has happened. Um, of course, I'm recording this a little bit earlier in the week, but this is going to be releasing on uh, this Wednesday, uh, the 16th of October as of this recording. But um, this past week was really big for me just as a person and as an actor in my career. Uh, for those of you who um, don't know, I've mentioned it a couple times. Not only am I a podcast host and a super nerd, but I am also an actor out here in sunny Los Angeles. And um, constantly working on furthering my career and dealing with all the trials and tribulations of being a uh, quote-unquote starving artist in LA. Um, I had some really good stuff happen this past week. Uh, first off, I booked my second uh, voiceover gig. It was fantastic. Had a great time. Uh, went and recorded that this past Thursday. I also um, I landed an agent. Ah! I landed a voiceover agent. I'm really excited about it. I'm officially repped by Brandy Ilson over at Aperture Talent. Really excited. Uh, I want to give a big thanks to Brandy and the entire voiceover department over there. Um, they are just fantastic so far. I've been really loving collaborating with them this past week. Even in this past week, um, it's been really good having a great building a great relationship and establishing a great relationship with that agency. I'm really excited to be part of their super talented VO uh, talent list, and I cannot tell you how excited I am about um, the future going forward with this. And then also, this week is a big week for me on screen as well as uh, in voiceover. 
This past Monday, which is the 14th, uh, saw the release of episode two of the Dark Chronicles uh, horror anthology miniseries that is releasing and dropping a new episode every single Monday in October. Episode two dropped, which I was uh, fortunate enough to be a part of and star in. Go check it out on YouTube. It is Dark Chronicles The Relic. The episode is officially is called The Relic, and uh, I had a wonderful time working with everyone that was a part of this. They are a talented bunch of folks over there at uh, Carter Inc. Films and Come About Productions. The cast was superb. I had a great time with all of them, and I cannot wait to see uh, exactly what we do next, because it was a ton of fun. And then also, also very big, um, on October 15th, uh, we are getting an official release for our feature film that we worked on back in 2017 entitled One Night in October. Uh, it's officially releasing uh, both in uh, DVD form as well as video on demand. You can look for that on Amazon as well as order it. I believe, I'm not sure, you can go in uh, to like Walmart, Best Buy, Target, uh, and pick that up there. Support us, support indie filmmaking. This was our first feature that uh, the gang put together living in LA, and um, we're all just really excited about it. Uh, we got the distribution deal this past year, and we've been waiting, and um, this is a big week, so... A big thanks to everybody who tunes in, picks up, or uh, checks it out on uh, Video On Demand. Feel free to just Google it. You will find out where you can find it. Uh, check it out. Let me know what you think of it. Also, let me know what you thought of The Relic on YouTube. And definitely check out uh, the first episode of Dark Chronicles series as well, which is entitled Possession. Uh, they've got two more episodes coming out, so subscribe to them on YouTube to stay up to date with them and be one of the first to check out the episodes as they drop. But that is going to do it for the news this week. Um, lots of stuff to talk about, specifically personal stuff, so thank you for giving me the time to talk about my personal stuff. Uh, but now we are going to switch gears, we're going to head into the main course, the entree, if you will, of this week's episode, which is a full retrospective on the journey from John Doe to Joker in the Batman Telltale series. Did you ever think of me as your friend? Of course you were my friend. <laughs> you are one messed up guy. So I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I have been wanting to talk about this for a really long time. Um, I Ever since the first season of this came out, I have just been buzzing about it. And of course, what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Batman Telltale series. Uh, Telltale was a game development company that might be coming back, might not. We don't know the exact details yet. But uh, they specialized in narrative storytelling, and not just narrative storytelling with their video games, branching narrative. And that means that the narrative of the game, even though it had like a set uh, outline of how events would 
kind of uh, go, they had choices that the player would make. Um, some people liked their version of game, some people didn't, some people didn't like it just because it didn't feel like they had as much control over the actual like movements of the character, like say a uh, um, just for example, like say a Batman Arkham versus like a uh, Detroit Become Human, which is much more focused on the narrative and the character rather than the actual gameplay. Uh, Telltale was almost in a way like a playable motion comic, and I really liked the aesthetic of it. All of their stuff was uh, cell shaded. They delved into different stuff like The Walking Dead. Um, uh, Big B Wolf, like all of this stuff was kind of their bread and butter, and they decided to dip their toes into the superhero genre with Batman. Uh, the very first season was just Batman the Telltale series, and then they had season two, which was called Batman the Enemy Within. Uh, I loved these games. As soon as they came out, I was just, I was hooked. I came to the, uh, I came to the first season a little late in the game. Uh, the first two episodes had already been released, but as soon as I played them for the very first time, I had to play them just as soon as they came out. And from there, I pretty much played them as soon as each episode released, right after it did. And I was ecstatic to find out that they were doing a season two and that they were going to be building upon some of the great foundations that they set in the first season. Uh, to set the stage for you, they kind of placed this, I think, in, uh, I would say, like year two of Batman's career, which is a just one of my favorite periods just everybody loves year one and i love that as well but year two i think is where you get a lot of the more colorful aspects of batman's rogues gallery and his adventures kind of brought into the story uh, a lot of times year two is when writers will put the first appearance of certain costume characters year two is where uh, batman may or may not be introduced to robin so there's a lot of narrative potential with the second year of batman's crime fighting career and what i think they do really well in the first season is establishing the difference between uh, batman and bruce wayne what i love about this is that you get to play as bruce wayne pretty much as much as you get to play as batman and you also get certain moments with throughout both seasons where you get the opportunity to decide whether you're going to come to a situation as batman or as bruce wayne and the narrative will change depending on what you choose and who you decide to go as. So I really liked it. Uh, season one was a fantastic uh, reinterpretation of the classic Batman story that introduced a lot of interesting concepts that we see brought forward into uh, Batman and Batman adjacent media today. Like a lot of people were really surprised in Joker that came out this year, uh, kind of recasting Thomas Wayne as a villain. And I have to let people know that uh, Telltale did it first. They made just the whole idea of Thomas Wayne being this um, almost Christ-like, uh, uncriticizable, I know there's a better word for it, uh, figure in Bruce's life and kind of twisted this idea that, Bruce, yeah, Bruce always saw him as this infallible character, but what he really was was 
a member of Gotham's elite who had his hands in all crime. We're talking mob bosses, we're talking the drug trade, and Martha was basically uh, an accessory in that she, while she didn't agree with what Thomas was doing, she understood that that's how he made his money and kept his influence throughout the city. And so it really recontextualizes the whole Wayne murders, them being pretty heavily uh, implied that it was a mob hit, that uh, he was, that Thomas Wayne was involved in the Falcones, or the Falcones, however you want to pronounce it, um, as well as the Maronis as well. So I really enjoyed it, but the big thing that happened halfway through this season. I was really enjoying it. I was liking this more grounded aspect. The only real colorful character that we got was uh, Catwoman, who was at this point just kind of your run-of-the-mill, super really good at her job uh, cat burglar. She was a thief. And while we did get introduced to this very new and very different version of Oswald Cobblepot, uh, we also got introduced to Lady Arkham, who was running the Children of Arkham, which was basically a cult, bent on destroying the uh, social norms and pretty much bringing down uh, Gotham society as it stood. And so halfway through the season... Batman is trying to figure out the identity of Lady Arkham, trying to figure out how to stop her. And at a press at a press conference, after being basically ousted from Wayne Enterprises and being replaced by Oswald Cobblepot, uh, he is there witnessing the press conference, and he is joined by Vicky Vale, who all of us know and love. Vicky Vale, the intrepid reporter, the uh, Lois Lane light as most people call her, and she is basically just talking to him about you know, how he must be f- feeling really frustrated, how she's sorry about everything that's happened, and then she goes down, she says, oh, you dropped your pen, and she kneels down, and Bruce says, oh, I didn't drop my pen, and then she stabs him in the hand with this pen, and what he realizes is that it wasn't a pen, it was a syringe, and it was filled with this formula that is used throughout the entire first season that basically turns off all of your inhibitions and turn turns you rabid and so it's in this moment where bruce is starting to be taken over by this uh this serum that he realizes that vicky vale isn't vicky vale at all and that her real name is victoria arkham uh again a big retcon just i would say just as big as the thomas wayne retcon making vicky vale not just a villain but a really integral villain to the entire season and so uh, Bruce ends up attacking Oswald at the press conference in front of everybody and he wakes up in where Arkham Asylum he has now been admitted after essentially going insane Uh, this also being done because of his good old pal Harvey Dent who had won the uh, mayoral race and depending on your actions was either horribly scarred or just revealed himself to be a two-faced dick so your buddy harvey after finding out that you slept with selena and all this stuff because she at the same time was trying to social climb while trying to steal from wayne enterprises and more or less it's kind of up to the narrative on whether she meant to or not uh, pit Harvey against Bruce. And so Bruce wakes up in Arkham Asylum. 
Um, he is confronted by a couple of the other inmates there who are basically taking him to task for what his father did, locking up a lot of people at Arkham Asylum, essentially using Arkham Asylum as uh, Thomas Wayne's private prison to jail and incarcerate his, whether it was his political opponents or people who just disagreed with him. And after Bruce is still dealing with the effects of this serum that he was injected with, he is rescued by another inmate in the asylum, a pale-skinned in inmate who brutally beats up the inmates that are attacking Bruce before uh, helping him up, and Bruce sees this man who introduces himself as John Doe. John Doe is a all-white-skinned, green-haired man who seems to be in a weird state of mind. He seems to have not just, like, uh, manic depressive disorders. He also seems to have multiple personalities, um, all kinds of different uh, mental health problems. But he takes a liking to Bruce and immediately tries to uh, get in good with him. And all of us, the moment we saw him show up, we knew this is the Joker. You can't, you can't ignore the white skin and the green hair. He didn't have the red lips. He didn't, you know, he wasn't wearing a purple suit. He was wearing, you know, a purple shirt under his uh, inmate uniform. But this was our chance to see a proto Joker. And in this episode, episode four is basically where this all goes down, where Bruce is in the asylum and Joker helps him uh, escape essentially, by not just causing a riot, uh, which can go one of two ways for you, but also telling Bruce that he owes him a favor if he helps him get out. Now, it's up to you as the player to decide whether you will agree to the favor or not. Uh, I've done both. And when Bruce gets out, he's able to, of course, go and stop Lady Arkham. Uh, during the final episode, you can either get part of Bruce's ear shot off or one of Alfred's eyes shot out. Like, it's it's great just how many branching uh, timelines, how many branching narratives you can get in this game. But the big takeaway for me was at the very end, um, after the credits roll for the final episode of the first season, you see news coverage of a press conference where either uh, you showed up to support Gordon as Batman or Bruce Wayne, and then essentially an assassination attempt happened. So they're covering it on the news that you see in this bar that John Doe is out. He's out of Arkham Asylum. We don't know how he got out, but he's in normal clothes, and he basically says, Oh, Bruce, this is going to be fun. And so from there, we know that season two is going to be featuring the hell out of John Doe. And so I am going to preface this. Uh, with a strong spoiler warning, if you haven't played these games, uh, pause this, go play them, come back. Uh, they're pretty cheap. You can find both seasons relatively cheap nowadays, uh, especially since Telltale kind of closed its doors. I was... Um, I probably should have done the spoiler warning earlier, but we're doing it now, just so I can say, yes, I gave you a spoiler warning. And also... Um, in season two, when we're talking about John Doe's story, uh, at a certain point in the story, try to stay as spoiler-free as I can before we dive into it, his story branches at the end of episode four uh, and gives you two paths for John Doe to go. 
Um, depending on what you choose, you will get either one of these paths. I have played one of the paths in the past, and to prep for this episode, I decided to go back and play the other path. So I'll be talking about both of those paths in... Um, in some detail as we go along, but uh, honestly, it is amazing to go through both of these seasons completely blind, completely fresh. So if you haven't played these games, I, I, I really want you to experience this. Pause this, I will forgive you for pausing uh, my voice for a little while, and then go play these games, love them, experience them with fresh eyes, come back, and we'll discuss here. Um, so that is out of the, we got the spoiler warning out of the way, the disclaimer about the branching paths out of the way. So let's talk about season two. Let's talk about Batman, the enemy within. I'm not going to go into full like beat by beat uh, story narrative points, but I am going to talk about certain things that happen in relation to John. Because I think a lot of people say that uh, Arthur Fleck, the Joaquin Phoenix version of the Joker, is the most sympathetic version of the Joker that we've ever seen. I would humbly disagree. As someone who has been reading the comics for a long time, loves these characters, and has experienced you know, at least half a dozen different interpretations of the Joker, I think the most sympathetic, the most um, tragic version of this of this joker character is john doe who is found in the telltale series so i'm going to talk about why that is but first we're going to talk about kind of setting the scene uh in the first episode of season two you unfortunately uh basically caused the death of lucius fox i said spoilers so if you made it this far and you have not played these games, this is your fault. Um, Lucius Fox is killed by the Riddler using a drone strike. And at Lucius's funeral, we are reintroduced to John Doe. Uh, John here is trying his best to fit into society. He even gives Bruce a get well soon card, which is just so good. But what I love about this is this it really uh, sets the stage pretty well right out the gate that John is troubled. And not just in the way that he has um, mental health issues, that he has uh, violent tendencies, but he's also extremely impressionable and very naive to the world. Um, we don't know how long he was in Arkham Asylum. People even say during your time in there that no one knows when he showed up. He was just there one day, and no one knows how long he's been there. But all of this uh, mysterious past aside, John doesn't remember himself before the art before Arkham Asylum. So this gives John this weird place where you're almost looking after him as a younger brother figure or as a uh, surrogate son in a way, bef long before Dick Grayson came on the scene. But I really enjoyed John here. I really enjoyed John Doe just as a character because he is someone who is in this proto-Joker state. And a lot of people, you know, throw around that concept of like a proto this, a proto that. But this really is the essence of that type. This is Joker before he becomes the Joker. And just like in season one with Harvey Dent, you get this sense inside of you that you want to prevent John from turning into the Joker. Um, and as we know, uh, just like in season one, you can't outrun your 
true nature. Uh, as hard as I tried playing through season one, I could never get Harvey to not turn into Two-Face, whether that was uh, with the scars or without the scars. And for John, it's the same way here, but it is a slow build. Uh, you get essentially four full episodes trying to decipher what John's about, trying to help him along his way of discovering himself along with uh, his romance, which we will get into. And John really tries to be as good a friend to Bruce as possible. Like, you get this option after uh, John initially reintroduces himself into the story to place a tracker on him. Uh, I played both times placing a tracker on him and not placing a tracker on him. And later on, when he contacts you with information about the Riddler, you meet him in a bar, and he is either disappointed because he finds the tracker that you put on him but forgives you right away or he really takes to heart that you trusted him to not put the track to not you know put any kind of tracker on him and allowed him to reach out to you and this whole idea of trusting each other is really uh, integral to their story and to their friendship because for most of the season, you're really kind of using John to get into the pact, which is, of course, the group, the villain group composed of originally Riddler, Harley Quinn, uh, Mr. Freezebane, and John. Uh, and I will say, I loved the pact. I loved all these different iterations of the characters, uh, the Riddler being a just a ghost from Gotham's past. He was a former vigilante turned villain. I love that. Um, everybody did really, really, really good stuff to make me look at them as these new incarnations and not just long for other incarnations. Uh, Mr. Freeze has all the beats that you would expect from Mr. Freeze character, but his entrance is really, really cool. When they do the uh, EMP in the subway, you just hear this shriek from another room, and Mr. Freeze just comes running out of the room just in dire straits because the EMP knocked out the life support for Nora. So he runs in, you know, freezes somebody's gun, just breaks it in half, and he just goes after people to turn the power back on. Loved it. Uh, Bane also really leaned into the luchador aspect, and as a wrestling fan, I love that. I just do. And uh, I really like that they gave him a, uh, a mustache. It's a, it's a minor thing, but um, a lot of people forget that Bane is from a South American province in the DC universe. And uh, I always like when people really pay attention to that kind of stuff. Harley had the biggest change, and her relationship with John really is something that drives his narrative. Uh, this version of Harley switches up the normal dynamic of Harley being attracted to the Joker and giving up her life to join him. This is a Harley who knows who she is, who left Arkham Asylum because her father suffered from a mental illness and she wasn't able to save him, and so she turned to a life of crime. And she is the one that attracts Joker. She's the one that's dismissive of Joker. She's the one who really is in control of her relationship with John. And... I'm probably going to use John and Joker interchangeably just throughout this, so just be aware of that. But their relationship is so fascinating to me, and it's because I've seen it. I've seen it with friends. I've seen it with people that I know. I've seen a relationship. I'm not going to 
name names because of my respect for these people. But I, I was witness to a relationship like this uh, years ago where a very good friend of mine who reminds me a lot of John in this game, um, very innocent, very naive, very impressionable, uh, but just a heart of gold and really just an amazing friend. And he was at the time pursuing this girl who I just, I knew was wrong for him, just she was so dismissive of him. She just kept him wrapped around her finger. She was an awful person. And I don't like, I try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt when I meet them, but this person really was not good for him. She was very manipulative and she pitted him against one of his best friends at a certain point. And it was really hard to watch. And having that uh, having that experience and going in and watching the Harley and John uh, relationship here was really just enhanced the experience for me because I knew that Harley was going to inadvertently cause John to turn to the Joker. And while I didn't realize that my actions were going to do as much to contribute to that as hers, um, I was fascinated by this new version of Harley because we've never seen this before. We've never seen a John who is, or we've never seen a Joker who is subservient to Harley Quinn. So I really liked their relationship. Uh, she's very sure of herself. This is the most um, self-assured Harley Quinn we've ever seen. And she is just a uh, kick-ass, take names, like no prisoners kind of attitude. And John is smitten. There's a moment during the, uh, I want to say it was either the second or third episode, where uh, John takes Bruce to a cafe, where they're sitting, you know, Bruce is having, you know, a little... Uh, I'm going to assume it's an Americano because that's what Bruce Wayne would drink. And John is just slurping down on a Frappuccino. And John is like asking Bruce for relationship advice. And Bruce, like you get this, you know, you get all these dialogue choices where you can help shape John's um, courtship with Harley. You can tell him to fake being, you know, real machismo. You can tell him to genuinely be himself. And how you um how you advise him really shapes how he interacts with her for the rest of the season and i love that um i did think it was a little weird that after uh the switch when at least in the uh the villain portion which of course we will get to both of those branching paths uh harley becomes almost immediately um subservient to him for most of that story but Overall, that aside, I really loved the evolution of their relationship. And at numerous points during uh, dialogue with Harley, she keeps saying he's he's still incubating. He's still growing. He doesn't know who he is yet. Like, Harley sees the Joker inside him, but she doesn't know how to bring that out of him. And I thought that was fascinating. Um, speaking of that uh, exchange trying to advise John uh, the friendship that John and Bruce have is just so good just so good because both of them are essentially kind of using each other um, John is using Bruce to get uh, get in Harley's good graces and once he deduces that he's Batman he's trying to get in on you know Batman's game which of course does uh, manifest in one of the other branching paths and I I I 
I'm going to preface this. I really enjoyed the Bruce and Harvey friendship in season one. It really made you want to uh, redeem him. It really made you want to try and stop him from becoming Two-Face. The relationship you have with John in this season blows that out of the water. There's no, there's no contest. Um, John Doe in this season is so perfect as a character because you see the darkness in him, but you also see that he doesn't know what to do with that darkness. He doesn't know how to channel it. He doesn't know how to uh, even deal with the fact that it's inside of him. So I love that aspect, and I love the idea that he constantly comes to Bruce, you know, not knowing what to do and wanting genuine help from his friend. And you can absolutely, there is the option for you to be completely manipulative towards John and use him up and use him until he's bled dry but i as a person because i i play these games like i'm stepping into the shoes of batman like i am trying to make the decisions that not only would bruce wayne make but what i would make if i was bruce wayne and i couldn't for the life of me outwardly coldly uh, manipulate john i really wanted what was the best for him and i took that as trying to be a good friend for him and trying to tell him to just be yourself when it came to Harley and to, you know, help him kind of navigate the outside world where he doesn't really understand uh, social norms and social graces. So I really, really enjoyed that. And then comes the choice. So in episode five, you get the choice to uh, believe John or to think he's lying when you stumble upon him just surrounded by dead bodies inside of a funhouse, no less. Just amazing set design on all of these games. Um, and John pleads with you. He's like, these guys attacked me. This was the agency, which is kind of the uh, the stand-in for Argus here. Um, these guys attacked me. It was all self-defense. But you start to see clues that it might not have been that clear-cut because you do see that um, there are, there's one agent who has a bullet hole in their back, like they were surprised. So, um, And what I love is you never see it. You never get a definitive answer on what happened there. But you have the option. You can either believe John or you can say that he's lying. And... This is the first big major choice on to, on what path you set him on. And if you choose to believe him, it starts you on the path for him to remain Bruce's friend. If you choose to not believe him, he lashes out at Bruce and escapes and puts him on the path to being Bruce's enemy. So for me... At first, I chose to believe him. I had tried to be as guiding towards him as I could. I wanted to believe there was light in him and goodness in him and when you follow this scene up with going to the bridge where harley quinn has taken hostages uh john tells you let me talk to her i can do this and so you get the choice to send him out there and you get the choice to either let him talk to harley or have uh agents go in to try and subdue her and either one of those choices will depend on what happens here. So I chose to believe John both playthroughs, 
and it was really here at the bridge where I made a choice. If you make the choice to let John do his thing, trust John, he subdues Harley Quinn himself, but because the agency doesn't trust him, he ends up leaving with this uh, vial that could essentially be a chemical uh, be a chemical weapon towards Gotham. And, but he stays aligned with Bruce as he escapes. Or what you can do is you can choose to send agents in to subdue Harley and John takes it as a betrayal and so he escapes with Harley. And the moment that they have together where they're about to jump off the bridge and they finally, you know, they kiss. We've been waiting for this. John has been waiting for this for God knows how long. And they pull back and you see the red lips on Joker for the first time. It being smeared from Harley Quinn's lipstick. Genius. Absolutely genius. I love this. Um... And then they jump off the bridge. So here you get your branching paths, whether Joker decides to become a vigilante or a villain. Um, my first playthrough, I played with him as the vigilante. And I loved it. I loved, 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 loved it. Uh, talking about the vigilante path, uh, Joker essentially joins up with Batman to war against the agency, uh, who he sees as villains. He even gets this funny... He retrofits himself to be the perfect Batman sidekick. He styles his hair into the two Batman um, ear points. He, you know, wears this long purple trench coat uh, and has his own, like, Joker versions of uh, Batman's um, gadgets. Like, he has this Batarang that's really just, like, a, a spiky, smiley face. So I really enjoyed it. He, You also get to see the Suicide Squad show up in here, and they're... Catwoman, Harley Quinn, and um, what's it called Bane. Uh, so I really liked that. It basically pits you guys against the agency, which I thought was really cool, especially because Amanda Waller is such a huge um, anti-hero, sometimes villain, sometimes not in the DC universe. Having her uh, play both those roles here was really cool. Um, of course, the final... Um, the final set piece ends up at where else Ace Chemicals, where Joker has kind of gone off the deep end. He is done playing these games. He has kidnapped Amanda Waller and is going to execute her. Uh, but Batman, of course, is there to stop him. And Joker, like his support from Bruce being uh, taken away from him, he cracks. And he kills the agents nearby him. And he first finally calls himself the Joker, and you are forced into this final climactic fight between the two of them, which ends inside of a control room where you get the uh, quote that we had as the intro for this segment where um, John basically tells him, you know, were we ever friends? And you get the choice, and it was heartbreaking because you get the choice to tell him, no, we were never friends, or yes, of course we were friends. And of course I picked, as you heard, of course we were friends. Because I genuinely felt that way. I genuinely felt that I had tried my best to be as good a friend to John as possible. And while things got out of hand, um, he was not beyond redemption. And so it just it broke my heart because then he says, you are one messed up guy. And it broke my heart. It broke my heart. But then afterwards, after everything is kind of... Um, more or less wrapped up you see you get this uh, post-credit scene where bruce visits john 
in Arkham Asylum. So that friendship might continue on. Uh, of course, we never got the answer to that because Telltale went down, but with rumors that Telltale might come back, I would love to get a season three to really wrap up the story because there were a lot of hanging plot threads. Dialing it back to the villain run, which was the most recent one that I did because I wanted to make sure I had played through both before I did this episode. Um, it's dark. Like, it's really dark. Uh, so, of course, uh, John escapes with a chemical agent along with Harley Quinn, and it picks up three weeks later, and Detective Bullock is attacked, and um, oh, it's gruesome. So the GCPD and Batman find Bullock pinned up against this, uh, this van. Nails have been driven through his hands to keep him pinned. Uh, he has been just bludgeoned over the head with probably Harley's uh, sledgehammer, so he has... Uh, head trauma and you see that a smiley face has been cut into his stomach and what you find out is that that smiley face was so that the joker could stick a box potentially a bomb into bullock's stomach it's gruesome it's dark and what i will say is that the villain path for this game is much darker than the vigilante path the vigilante path is actually really fun and i would if you were on the fence on choosing which one i would absolutely choose the vigilante path uh just to see all of this ridiculous stuff because we've never seen this side of the joker before but the villain path is so dark and um it really involves a lot of death um joker and harley quickly whip up the correct chemical agent so it's you know not so much joker gas in that it doesn't you know fix people with a rictus grin it just kills them it just kills them outright and uh joker or john re you know reappears or makes his grand debut at the beginning of episode five as the joker in a wayne uh enterprises boardroom and he's like shaved off one of his eyebrows his hair slicked back this is more closer to the traditional joker that we see um getting to him being more crazy we talk about him calling himself joker anytime we called him john he'd be like don't call me that and i loved that he's trying to really um disassociate both of those identities and it's fascinating because we've seen the joker be unhinged before we've seen the joker have plans before this is a truly chaotic joker who doesn't know what he wants he knows he wants to hurt bruce because bruce hurt him by betraying him but he doesn't know how to make that align with what he knows and what he um is ultimately trying to accomplish uh this does also involve him giving up the map to all of the bomb sites just so that he can get a crack at hurting bruce um it's just it's fascinating and when the um when everything kind of pops off back at the fun house uh you get this wonderful little tag team match between uh bruce and selena versus harley and joker and then you get this climactic battle between the two of them and it's i want to preface this um, you're not fighting Joker as Batman in the villain path. You're fighting him as Bruce Wayne. And so it feels more personal. It feels more um, heartbreaking. It feels more tragic because the two of them really were friends, at least in my playthroughs. They really were genuinely friends and that it's come to this is just, it's heartbreaking. And so at the very end, you know, you beat the crap out of him. And Joker finally like asks him once again in a different way basically saying like 
were we friends? Were we really friends? Did we, we had good times, right? And Bruce says, you know, you get the option to say, no, we were never friends or, you know, yeah, we had some good times together. And of course, because I'm who I am and I was playing true to character, uh, I said, yes, yeah, we absolutely had good times. And John was like, that's good. I hope you remember me. And then he stabs Bruce in the stomach. So he's like, I hope anytime you look at that scar, you remember the good times we had. And you see that, you know, John, John ultimately John's gone. John's gone and Joker is here to stay. Um, we do see in the post credit scene for the villain path that Joker is still obsessed with Bruce. He knows Bruce's identity, which brings a whole new dynamic to the two of them. And um, you see that he's not going to be done with him for a very long time. So I loved the Joker here. Um, getting to see both of those aspects, I think for me it's more tragic if you play the vigilante storyline. I would say between the two, uh, I think I enjoyed the vigilante storyline more. But the villain storyline, getting the traditional Joker, is... Um, it's fantastic. It really is. And I'm assuming if they had gone through with the season three, even if you did play the vigilante role, since he becomes the Joker at the end, he would end up um, with the traditional Joker uh, mannerisms and stuff, depending on whether you chose to still be his friend at the end or not. But I am just fascinated by this character, by um, this iteration of the character, played wonderfully by uh, Anthony Ingruber. Uh, Anthony Ingruber is a wonderful voice actor who is also uh, known on YouTube for his impressions. He is also a spitting image of a young Harrison Ford and actually played a young Harrison Ford in Age of Adeline. And he was my pick to play the young Han Solo in the Solo spinoff, but of course that went to Alden Ironreich. Uh, for better or for worse. And um, I just love his iteration of him here because he really, as a voice actor, I look for specific things like this, and he really imbued everything that John does with purpose. And whether that is known to John, whether John knows his purpose or not, um, it really shines through. And his performance here is just wonderful. The design of him is fantastic. How he's, you know, got just like the concept of the character he's got the blueprints for the joker's style in his wardrobe but it's messy it's unrefined and that really blends into his actual character so i think it's incredibly fascinating it's intriguing it really draws you in and it's incredibly tragic the story of john doe watching him fall from grace whether he was in the vigilante or the villain storyline again i would probably recommend the vigilante storyline over the villain storyline because even though I loved a lot of what happened in the villain storyline and the soundtrack for the ending fights in the funhouse is mwah, just perfection. Um, the tragedy of John's storyline, especially if you had been friends with him all the way up until this point, is just too good to pass up. It is a fantastic story. I absolutely recommend it. And it's one of my favorite Joker iterations of all time. Um, it might be my favorite just because of how much your choices impact the story and you really get a sense of ownership for everything that happens for better or for worse when it comes to John. Um, him turning into the Joker is ultimately your fault, uh, whether that's 
uh, inadvertently or directly. So I loved it. If you haven't played this, again, go back, play them. If you've only played one path, I urge you, go back, play the other path, just so you can see, like I did, the differences, how strong they are. Um, I didn't want to talk about everything beat by beat because I want you to experience it. I love this version of the character. If Telltale does indeed actually come back, I hope we get a follow-up with this. I hope we get a season three. And I would love to continue the story of Bruce Wayne and John Doe because it is one of the... It's, it's one of those star-crossed lover uh, aspects. And though you do kind of... Uh, get the impression that you have the option to drop hints that the relationship between Bruce and John is more than friends. I stuck with them just being friends and chose to romance Selena because Batcat forever, of course. Um, I, I really do think that their friendship is something that is the benchmark for the Batman Telltale series. And it is one of my favorite versions of the character. It's why I wanted to talk about it. It's why I made it the focus of this week, of this chapter of the video game corner of Joketober. And it's something that I definitely think you should check out because John Doe and the tragedy that befalls him is really just, it's no laughing matter. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our podcast where I review something weekly. And this episode is a special one. This kicks off our coverage of the final season of Arrow. Arrow has been going for, it feels like, decades. And with this season, they're officially coming to an end. It's kind of bittersweet thinking about it. Um, I remember watching the very first season of Arrow and being really, really excited and impressed. And then at the same time, wondering if this was just going to kind of turn into a Batman clone. Um, I think in certain ways it definitely did that, but in other ways it really established itself as its own thing and really brought Oliver Queen and the entire supporting cast of that show to, I would say, not super mainstream prominence, but pretty up there. Um, I'm really excited about this. We are beginning. We're on our first steps towards the countdown to Crisis on Infinite Earths, which is coming very, very soon. Um, and this really kicks it off. The entire, it seems like the entire season of Arrow is going to be kind of building us up to Crisis, uh, which I'm excited about. I think we've pretty much told every single story that you can tell with these characters in their own bubble in Star City. So I'm excited to see how they feed into the coming Crisis and what that's going to mean for the characters, not just in this show, but also the characters who are close to them in other shows. So this episode, which is episode number one of season eight, entitled Starling City, uh, that title rings a certain bell. It's what Star City was called before the quote-unquote death of Ray Palmer. And right away, with it being called Starling City, I raised an eyebrow. I was like, wait a second, what's happening here? And in certain... Um, in certain ways, like this was essentially a shot-for-shot -shot remake 
or a reboot, if you will, of the very first episode of Arrow, which I loved. So this uh, takes place on what I would call a brave new world and yet a very familiar one as well because the whole episode opens up exactly how the very first episode of Era opened up with a very specific difference. So Oliver is on Lian Yu. He, you know, shoots the fire arrow into the bonfire to get the attention of a uh, nearby passing fishing boat. And as he's heading towards the spot where the fishermen will find him, there is a a little shrine set up, similar to how it was set up in uh, the very first episode where we got our first glimpse at the Deathstroke mask and the hint that we would be meeting Slade Wilson down the line. But in this iteration, we don't see the Deathstroke, Deathstroke mask we see the bat cowl batman was on this island we don't know how long our uh oliver was on this island we don't know um if he crossed paths with batman we don't know if he defeated batman it certainly seems like that since the uh the shrine has an arrow through the eye of the bat cowl but unfortunately, we're probably not going to get answers to that, and we're going to talk about that in just a bit. But I think it was really cool that they mentioned him. Uh, we've been getting different iterations of Bruce Wayne coming to TV recently uh, with both... Um, I can't remember his name, but uh, we do have Bruce Wayne popping up on uh, Titans, as well as we do know that Kevin Conroy is coming back to play the role in uh, Crisis as well. So I'm excited. I'm excited that they keep integrating this more and more. We've been getting little teases of it throughout, and I... uh, I've loved it. I loved the idea that uh, Oliver believes, at least on Earth-1, that Batman's a myth, that he doesn't believe in the Batman, um, but he's mentioned rubbing shoulders with Bruce Wayne before. So it's really tongue-in-cheek, and I really enjoyed that. But here was a re- was shots fired for sure, uh, hinting at the possibility that Oliver might have defeated and possibly killed Bruce Wayne on this island. We don't know for sure. Uh, We don't know how long that mask has been there, how long Oliver was on Lian Yu. It doesn't look like a long amount of time because he didn't have like the shaggy hair or anything, but he was definitely there for a little while. So he returns to Starling City, and we find that instead of him being gone for five years on this Earth, he was gone for over a decade. So in that time, we got to see um, changes and how that affected the world. We saw that un- unlike on Earth-1, this uh, on this Earth, which we did get confirmation is Earth-2, um, Oliver never came back, So, and it's hinted that he died on the... Uh, on the Queen's Gambit in the opening of the pilot episode. Um, And we see that Walter, who went into a relationship with their mom, uh, wasn't involved here, and that opened the door for Malcolm Merlin to swoop in and uh, both romance and wed uh, Moira Queen. I knock my socks off. I love John Barrowman as an actor. I really enjoyed him here. And we got to see a a Malcolm Merlin who, as far as we know, was a good guy. And more on that in just a second, but I loved getting this. Uh, on this Earth, on Earth 2, nostalgia rules. So we get all of the little stuff from the first episode. We got the Verdant nightclub. Tommy's alive. Malcolm's alive. Uh, Malcolm and Moira married. So now Tommy is officially uh, Oliver's brother here. 
But we do see that, unfortunately, without the guidance of her older brother that she got in the first season, Thea Queen unfortunately died of an overdose. And that's... Oh, man. Um, we saw the beginnings of this in the first season where Thea was kind of in a rough spot. She was uh, addicted to drugs, uh, to the party life, and uh, if it hadn't been for Oliver intervening, she might have ended up just like the Thea on Earth 2. So that was really sad, but I'm sure we're going to get Thea again soon. We've seen uh, press release photos of Thea showing up in this season, so she's definitely going to show up here. Uh, but for me, I really enjoyed the fact that even though Oliver wasn't here, there was a hood if you remember back in the first couple seasons of the of Arrow, um, Green Arrow wasn't a thing. They mentioned calling him Green Arrow in the first season, and Oliver thought that was dumb. And <laughs> so he went by the Hood. And we do see that the Hood is active here. And what we come to find out is the Hood is Adrian Chase. Prometheus from a couple seasons back, I thought he was a wonderful, wonderful villain. Um excellently played by the actor as well who makes a reappearance here and we see that he is he has stepped into the green arrow role he calls himself the hood he acts very much like season one oliver very kind of stilted and stoic uh we got to see oliver loosen up over the seasons but i like that we didn't see that right here from this version of adrian chase it would be very easy to just show him in the same headspace as Oliver is now, but this is an Adrian who took on the mantle of the hood, but didn't have Felicity, didn't have Diggle around him to kind of soften him up. And uh, I really liked that. I really liked how he was so focused on the mission. He was very Batman-like in the same way that Oliver was in his first season. And I liked that he had only one partner, and that was, of course, Laurel Rip. Laurel Lance. Earth 2 Laurel Lance. I don't know how she jumped back from Earth 1 to Earth 2, probably with help from uh, Vibe and the whole team at Star Labs, but it seems like she's been there for a while, and she's been helping out the Hood. They set up their own bunker, um, and that they really uh, have been working well as a team. So Laurel is there, she's doing her thing, and uh, she immediately is just like, what are you doing on my Earth? So I really liked... I would have honestly liked to see more of Adrian Chase as the Hood teaming up with Laurel Lance, but what I did see, I really, really liked. We also got to see the Dark Archer again, and this was the big crux of the first season, with Malcolm Merlin kind of being the big bad for the season under the guise of the Dark Archer. We found out later that he was trained by the League of Assassins and all that stuff, but here, after uh, Oliver immediately just goes after Malcolm, who has no idea what's going on, we find out that the Dark Archer is, in fact, Tommy Merlin. So this version is as close to the comics version as I think you will find, since in the comics, the Dark Archer was Tommy Merlin. So I really like that they finally pulled the trigger on that. I've been waiting for them to do that for got for years and so they finally did that and you find out that the reason he is the dark archer is because of what happened to thea that he after she died he blamed the glades and all of the basically the poor people uh for what happened to her so he goes 
for his own undertaking, which, again, was the big crux of the first season. Malcolm Merlin basically trying to destroy the Glades using this earthquake machine. Now, we do find out why Oliver is on this Earth in the first place, because the Monitor sent him there to get uh, Dwarf Star Fragments. We don't know what the Monitor is going to use these for. Uh, we do know that he is going to be uh, going up against the Anti-Monitor any day now at this point, so... We will definitely be seeing use for that, but it seems like what this season is going to be, and I might be wrong on this, but I would really be interested to see uh, Oliver jumping, every episode is going to be him jumping to a different Earth to accomplish a different goal, whether that's getting a new piece of tech, whether that's recruiting a new hero. So I really, I like that idea, and I'm interested to see where they go with this. Um, Arrow has tried its best to kind of stay grounded and not deal with so much of the time travel or uh, multiverse theory that The Flash and Legends of Tomorrow has dealt with, and even Supergirl to a certain extent. But um, I like that we're finally dropping Oliver into this to see how he reacts, because he is the most grounded of everybody. So it's going to be interesting to see how he deals with all of this science fiction nonsense. But I really liked Tommy here. He's of course, he's fantastic. Um, I loved seeing him and Oliver back together again, brought back uh, nostalgia for the first season. And then his redemption arc, where Oliver finally gets him to turn the machine off, something he couldn't get Malcolm to do. And we do see finally the difference between Malcolm and Tommy, that they were always different people and they would react to different things. Uh, even though they, in these incarnations, had similar goals. So I really liked that. Uh, we also got to see the return of the OTA, or the original Team Arrow. Uh, just Oliver, just Diggle, that's who they were for that first season. Felicity wasn't meant to be a long-term character, but people loved her so much that she ended up staying on and it ended up being the three of them. But at the, at the start, for the first half of the first season, it was Oliver and Diggle. That was the team. And I liked that they had Diggle come with him. That it began with him and Diggle, and it's going to end with him and Diggle. So Diggle used uh, one of Vibe's... Um, I can't remember what they're... Breach. He used the little Breach device to jump to this Earth to help Oliver out. And I love that they had him meet Oliver in the exact same way as they did in the first episode, being his quote-unquote bodyguard, and all of the stuff that... Uh, they, all the interactions that they had in the first episode were also here, but they were recontextualized because they now were entering these situations with all of the knowledge of not only the... Um, the actual events, but also of each other going into this. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, David Ramsey and Stephen Amell are just a fantastic duo. They are as close to a Batman and Robin as we will, I think, ever get in this uh, in this DCCW universe. And I love that they're putting an emphasis back on them. I don't know if he's going to be sticking with him throughout each mission on each Earth, but I would be totally fine with that if they went that route. Uh, I also really liked the continuing story of the future storyline which we got from last season we're talking it was in 2039 last season now it's 20 or uh, 2040 where it's um oliver's two kids both william and mia along with um zoe ramirez which uh has they've kind of set up as a possible new black canary last season we don't know but uh we do get them kind of trying to be the new team arrow and it doesn't go as smoothly as they would hope it would but i really liked the dynamic i like the dynamic of all four of them trying to 
kind of figure out this hero gig with each other. We see that Mia has a bit of, uh, has kind of the same fiery tendencies as Felicity does and a little bit of the stubbornness that Oliver has. So I really like that. Um, I'm really, I really want to see more from Connor. I really liked Connor in uh, the Legends of Tomorrow, Star City 2040 um, episode. And I like the idea of him becoming the new Green Arrow, but it looks like Mia's going to be taking over that spot. Uh, so that kind of leaves him in a weird space. We do know that William is going to be their tech guy and that uh, Zoe is kind of like their enforcer in a way. So I don't know exactly what we have in store for them. Uh, we do know that a possible or a spinoff is coming with Mia. We don't know how the rest of the group fits in with that. I hope they do because otherwise we're just setting up these characters to get killed or something or just be left behind. I'm not sure, but I liked their stuff. I don't think it was as strong as the rest of the stuff that happened in the episode, but I did like it and I'm looking forward to seeing more of them. So everything for the most part gets wrapped up pretty well in this episode. Uh, Tommy's brought to justice, but also gets his redemption. Uh, Oliver gets the dwarf star fragments. He There's this great moment where he tells Adrian, he's like, call yourself the green arrow soon. Like change it to the green arrow, trust me. And I loved seeing uh, Adrian Chase back. I just liked it. Uh, Josh Sagara plays a great, great villain and anti-hero, so I really liked that. Um, but unfortunately, this is all for naught. Unfortunately, all this resolution we're getting is um, is getting thrown away because at the end of the episode, uh, Earth 2 is gone. Earth 2 is destroyed by the oncoming crisis. Um Laurel, Diggle, and Oliver are able to jump back through a breach to get back to Earth-1, but um, everyone else is gone, and I was shocked by that, because if this is indeed the same Earth-2 that uh, was featured on The Flash, and it was, for the most part, hinted to be the exact same Earth-2, then we had a lot of people that we met on Earth-2 die. Harry's gone. Harry Wells, the best version of Wells, is gone. Uh, the dorky never uh, became a hero. Barry Allen is gone. Uh, police detective Iris West is gone. Um, pretty much all the characters that were on Earth 2 are no more. Uh, I thought Jesse Quick might have been among them, but we do know that she was brought to Earth 3 to help out, uh, help out Jay Garrick since he... Uh, is, you know, getting old and slowing down. So as far as we know, she's safe, but we don't know that for sure. It hasn't been confirmed yet. But I was, I was just, I was shocked. I was shocked that they let them destroy Earth 2 with everything we'd, uh, we'd built with them. Uh, Beth Schwartz, who was the showrunner, uh, did confirm that they had talks and that they had to go to the team behind Flash for approval to destroy Earth 2 and that uh, the team did give them the go-ahead. So this does seem to be the same Earth 2 that we know and unfortunately it's gone. So that immediately ratchets up the tension, lets us know the consequences and how, um, how dire the situation is that if Oliver fails in his missions, all of these Earths are going to die. If Barry and uh, Kara and the entire cast aren't able to stop the Anti-Monitor, 
they're all done. All the worlds are going to be just destroyed. So I was shocked by that. Um, overall, this was a great episode. I really liked it. Really brought us back to basics while also preparing us for the future. Uh, it wasn't a perfect episode. Like I said, I don't think the uh, the 2040 stuff fit as well with the narrative as it has as the uh, flashbacks and flash forwards have in the past uh even with last season where they integrated them they also had the running through line of trying to correct some of the mistakes made in the present day uh we had the through line of roy harper through both timelines so um i'm hoping that at some point in the season uh plot points converge and we finally get to see why we've been watching the present day stuff now uh we also got some weird uh inconsistencies like i loved seeing adrian chase as the hood here but uh, i think it was like in a previous flash season uh it was confirmed that robert queen uh, oliver's dad was the green arrow was the hood so i don't know how that specs up uh we also didn't get any of the art deco stuff that i love about uh earth 2 i loved the art deco um vibe that earth 2 had we didn't really see that here so uh, it's not perfect. It's not um, the shining beacon with no flaws that I kind of wanted it to be, but it is a solid episode. It sets up everything that we need to know going forward. Uh, we do have um, consequences plainly shown to us. Everybody is on high alert now, and Oliver's uh, mission is just going to get harder. So I would love to know what everyone thought about this. I... Again, I loved this episode. I'm really looking forward to the rest of this season, and I'm looking forward to Crisis. So we are going to see exactly what happens there. Uh, so tune in next week for the episode two review for Arrow season eight. But for now, let's jump on over to this week's Comics Countdown. Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop or on Comixology. However you get your comics, these are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. We'll be talking about each book's title, the creative team behind each book, as well as a brief synopsis of each book as well. And of course, each synopsis will be accompanied by my synopsis voices. If you have a synopsis voice you would like to request that I try out, feel free to do so on either of our social medias or through email. But before we get to this week's books, and trust me, there are a lot, uh, we got to talk about last week with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And I think to the surprise of probably no one, uh, the pick of the week of last week, of course, was Powers of Ten, number six, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by R.B. Silva. Uh, this book was fantastic. It really did set the stage for everything that's going to be happening in Dawn of X. Um, I'm just, I've just been blown away by all of Hickman's work to build this new world. That's really what these 12 issues were to kind of get a set for uh, the Dawn of X books, all of them. And I think it, 
I think he did a great job. Hickman, if anything, you know, you can talk about how slow his writing is. You can talk about how he plays the long game. There is no one working in comics right now who does better world building than Jonathan Hickman. You can tell he put time into this. You can tell he put a long amount of effort into building this Krakoan language, into setting up the whole ecostructure of Krakoa, into setting up the uh, the politics and the uh, society of Krakoa and the House of X, the House of M, all of that stuff. He really took the time to build all this out, and he took these 12 issues, House of X 1 through 6 and Powers of 10 1 through 6, to get us acquainted with the basics so that we can essentially know what's going on going forward. So I really appreciated it. It was a fantastic book, really giving us the idea that something darker is going on. All of Moira's diary uh, entries hint at Moira doing something, uh, especially how two, I think it was two of the entries were redacted. Um, by the way, I've been loving all the redactions just Throughout these books, it really keeps us guessing on, you know, what secrets are they keeping, what's going to happen, so I've been really enjoying it. Um, I just, I'm really excited for all of all of the Hickman stuff. I, at my, at my local comic book shop, uh, X-Men number one is the very first book that I've ever been put on a pull list at this specific comic book shop. That's a big deal. And it, I think, to me, that speaks volumes about how excited I am for this series and how much the uh, Hickman era of the X-Men has made an impression on me as a reader. So really looking forward to that. But that's last week. Let's talk about this week. This week, we have a whopping 11 books, ladies and gentlemen. We have an a ridiculous amount of books to talk about this week, so let's jump right on in, starting off with Nightwing number 65, Nightwing issue 65, written by Dan Jurgens with art by Ronan Cliquet, Cliquet, um, I mispronounced your name, and I apologize. Uh, this is continuing on the Rick Grayson versus the Court of Owls storyline that really kind of hooked me again. Uh, I loved when Scott Snyder introduced uh, the Court of Owls concept, that they made it part of Dick Grayson's backstory. I think that gives him a lot of layers and gives him a lot to work with, so I really appreciated it. And I'm glad that they're finally coming back to it and giving us a fresh spin on things because he'd been dealing with the court since the beginning of the Rebirth era. So I think having this new Rick Grayson, which we now all know has an expiration date, um, and kind of pitting him up against something that even Nightwing himself didn't really have an answer for, I think is a really interesting way to go with this. So let's jump into the synopsis here. While the Nightwings do their best to contain the situation in Bloodhaven, Rick faces off against Talon. But the battle is one not just of brawn, as Rick's psyche is taken to its limits when he learns about his family history for the first time since his memory was wiped. Will Rick Grayson at last become the gray son of Gotham he was destined to be, or will he choose the life he's been trying to establish himself in Bloodhaven? So... Overall, again, I really wanted something to kind of catch me, kind of hook me back for the book, and uh, putting him up against the Court of Owls is a great way to do that. So next up, we have Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, number four of 12, written by Matt Fraction with art by Steve Lieber. Uh, I will say last issue, issue three, 
um, didn't really uh, do it for me. I don't know if it was just the subject matter in the book or what, but uh, with the with each issue being kind of its own like anthology, having like four different stories going on, uh, you have to really pay attention to the uh, through lines through each of these stories. And for me, I felt a little lost last issue. So I'm hoping that this book kind of course corrects and because uh, I've just, I've been really enjoying it. So I'm hoping it does that. So let's jump into the synopsis here. What's up, nerds? It's your favorite irresponsible blogger, Timmy Olsen. In this month's episode of Timmy's Bros, someone requested we get Batman to crack who moitered that Daily Planet photo hack, Jimmy Olsen. Like, how many wheels does a guy have to steal off the Batmobile to get a Bat Dude's impression around here? So... With Jimmy being in uh, Gotham City, I was hoping he was going to run into Batman at some point, and this issue might just be the one. I've been really excited to see how Steve Lieber draws Batman, because I thought he did such a phenomenal job, really with all the art, but specifically with Jimmy and Superman so far, so I'm really looking forward to this. Next up, we have Justice League, number 34, written by James Tynan IV, with art by Jim Chung, uh, story also being done by Scott Snyder, with a little bit of uh, Francis Manipal tossed in there as well on art duties. I love this. Uh, as you know, last issue was my pick of the week of last week. Um, had to be a few episodes ago. But I am so excited. <laughs> because not only are we getting Justice Society, which has been here uh, in the last few issues, pretty much since the beginning of this arc. But we're also getting Justice League Beyond. We're talking Batman Beyond, Superman Beyond. All of them are going to be showing up in this book, and I could not be more excited. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The Justice Do More Part 5. All hypertime is breaking. If it blows, all of reality will follow after, which would be just fine for Lex Luthor, who is ready to prove to the evil goddess Perpetua that he's the bad man for her. The Justice League is attempting to do what they can, chasing the Legion of Doom across the time sphere. If the totality is put back together, the whole multiverse will tip toward Doom and have consequences that reverberate throughout the DC Universe, assuming it's not destroyed in the process. So yeah, uh, big stuff. Uh, what I can appreciate about Scott Snyder's Justice League is that every issue feels like an event book. He has done his best to make sure that uh, Justice League feels like a real book where all of these heroes have to come together to solve this problem, not where it's just, oh, this is something that one of us could handle, but all of us are suddenly there. So I have really been enjoying this arc, and I definitely think you should pick this one up. Next up, we have Captain America, number 15, written by Ta-Nehisi Coates, with art by Jason Masters. Um... Ah, God, I love the writing in this book, but the art is just, it's its really killing me. Um, I might be dropping this from my pull, from my, uh, my list soon, um, just because the art is really bothering me. Um, there's no, like, I'm not trying to, like, shame Jason Masters or anything, but I just, when you go from Qbert 
to masters it's it's just such a such a harsh jump and it's really making it hard to stick with this story or recommend it to people so um because i have had like people talk to me about how uh they liked that i recommended the captain america book because they enjoy the writing but they didn't like the art and it turned them off of it and i i get that absolutely but um we're gonna hold off you know putting it on the chopping block for one more week. I hope the art gets better here, so let's jump into the synopsis here. The Legend of Steve continues. Steve Rogers' mission to clear his reputation and to reestablish the good name of Captain America continues, as he and Jessica Drew, Spider-Woman, tackle a familiar old foe who is contaminating the water supply of a large Rust Belt city. So I like that this book has turned into kind of a, uh, a globe-trotting spy thriller. I enjoy that. I'm here for it. But I really need the art to start shaping up to match the great writing. Next up, we have Batman, number 81, written by Tom King with art by John Romita Jr. Um, this is fantastic. Last issue was really, 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 really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, and we're heading into the endgame here. There's only uh, four more more issues left of this book uh, before Tom King jumps into Batcat and uh, James Tynan IV takes over the book. Um, I'm excited. I'm really looking forward to this. John Romita Jr. drawing Batman is still phenomenal, even though um, he's been attached to some lesser comics that I haven't been enjoying as much in recent years. I've been really enjoying the stuff they have here, so let's jump into the synopsis. It's time for the big showdown. Batman is calling Bane out. But is the Dark Knight detective ready to take on the foe who broke him worse than any other that came before? And what else stands in Batman's way to put an obstacle between him and his enemy? Tread lightly, Batman. Because not only do the lives of your son and trusted friends hang in the balance, but your entire home could collapse on top of you. So last issue left us with the uh, cliffhanger of Thomas Wayne, Flashpoint Batman, getting ready to shoot and kill Damian Wayne. Obviously, they're not going to go through with that, but I said the same thing about killing Alfred, and as of this recording, he was killed. So, um... We're going to find out. I'm really, really looking forward to this. Next up, we have History of the Marvel Universe, number four of six, written by Mark Wade with art by Javier Rodriguez and Steve McNiven. Uh, this is, again, a great book if you want to get caught up on the just the current state of the Marvel Universe. Um, every single issue so far has been really great and a great encyclopedia piece. I can't wait to see this all collected in one book so that you can get, like, it's basically an encyclopedia for the current state of the Marvel canon. Uh, if you want to wait until it is all collected into one volume, totally get that, totally understand. Uh, it'll probably be an even better read, but I've so far been really enjoying the single issues as well. So let's jump into the synopsis here. From the Fantastic Four to the Death of Phoenix... Witness the awe and majesty of the beginnings of the modern Marvel Universe. 
So yeah, short and sweet to the point, really gets down to what it's talking about. Each book has been a different era, and it looks like this one is starting to head into where we, publication-wise, were looking at like uh, the mid to late 80s, probably into the 90s as well, if they decide to talk about Heroes Reborn. Let's see if they talk about Heroes Reborn. Next up, we have Flash Forward, number two of six, written by Scott Labdell with art by Brett Booth. Pick up this book. Pick up this book. Pick up this book. You have to buy this book or DC is going to think that Wally West does not sell books, which he absolutely needs to so we can get a full ongoing and not just a mini. I'm really excited for this. I was, uh, I liked Flash Forward a lot. Um, I kind of wish that they had had uh, Doc Shaner doing the interiors as well as the cover, but we can't all have what we want. But um Honestly, I really want this book to succeed because it's a great concept, but also Wally West as a character deserves more recognition than he gets. So let's jump into the synopsis here. When the border between the multiverse and the dark multiverse starts to buckle, who do you turn to? The answer, Wally West. Once the fastest man alive, he's now a man with nothing left to live for. Will Tempest Fuguenot's chosen champion rise to the occasion and fight back the demons of the darkness? Or will Wally's own demons win the day? So yeah, making Wally West the defender of the multiverse is such a good freaking move. I really, I just, I want this to work out so much. I want this to work so much. So pick this up, pick this up. I, I will say it again. Pick it up. Next up, we have uh, Absolute Carnage, number four of five, written by Donnie Cates with art by Ryan Stegman. This is the penultimate issue to the big symbiote event of the summer. Um, this is this has been really good so far. I need to jump into the uh, the Venom book by Donnie Cates and Ryan Stegman because if it is even near as good quality as this book has been, I uh, I might have to start picking up Venom. For sure. But I've been really loving this. It's been really good so far. And uh, let's jump into the synopsis here. Eddie Brock has taken a beating, lost the allies closest to him, and, after the shocking events of Absolute Carnage number three, sees no way to take Cletus Cassidy down once and for all without making the ultimate sacrifice. But what is the ultimate sacrifice? Of the two beings that are bonded as Venom, which will make it out alive? So that's ominous. Um, I, uh, I'm excited for this. This looks, this book has just been good so far. The writing has been fantastic. The art has been stellar and I'm looking forward to seeing what they do here. Next up, we have Superman year one, number three of three written by Frank Miller with art by John Romita Jr. Uh, this is the closing chapter to, to, uh, Superman year one. Hasn't been my favorite. I'll admit that I haven't loved everything that they've done with the last two books, uh, I think the last book went a little too into Frank Frank Miller's own like Millerisms, so uh, we'll see if this book kind of course corrects. But uh, one thing you can say is when Frank Miller has a vision, he is going to do his best to execute it. So um, yeah, that's all I can really say about that. So let's jump into the synopsis here. It's the jaw-dropping conclusion to Frank Miller and John Romita Jr.'s blockbuster reimagining of Superman's origin. In this final chapter, Clark Kent arrives in Metropolis, the city where he will fulfill his heroic destiny. 
Witness the first meeting between Superman and Lois Lane, the beginnings of Clark Kent's career at the Daily Planet, and the birth of his rivalry with Lex Luthor. But when the Joker arrives on the scene, the Man of Steel must enlist the help of his two strange new friends, Wonder Woman and Batman. God damn it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew he was going to get Batman in here. I knew it. Frank Miller just can't stay away. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just... Oh, that makes me so frustrated. That makes me so frustrated. I don't, I don't want it to, this to turn into like... A, I don't know. Whatever this is. But... One one feeling I've been getting reading Superman Year One so far with these two books is that Frank Miller didn't really want to write a Superman book. Like I don't I don't know the man personally, I don't know his headspace, but both of those books so far, the first two chapters, while they were fine books, they were fine books. There's nothing like inherently wrong with them. They didn't feel like Superman books. And I God, I should have known. I should have known. Frank Miller could not write a single limited series without bringing Batman in. And that bothers me because, yes, the meeting, the first meeting between Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman, it's iconic. You should do it. But I don't think it needs to be in this book. You're already talking about, it says on here, Superman and Lois Lane meeting for the first time. Clark Kent beginning his career in journalism, his rivalry with Lex Luthor. That's packed. That's a lot of stuff. And I'm afraid that it's just going to breeze over that just so we can get to the Batman and Joker stuff. And that, I don't know, that bothers me. But that's just me. We're going to move on here to a book that I'm very, very excited about. And that is X-Men number one written by jonathan hickman with art by lanil francis Yu. this is it this is the beginning of dawn of x this is kicking off the current status quo of the x-men and i am so excited for this so let's jump into the synopsis here dawn of x the x-men find themselves in a whole new world of possibility and things have never been better Jonathan Hickman and superstar artist Lenil Yu reveal the saga of Cyclops and his handpicked squad of mutant powerhouses. So I think that's really great. I like that, just looking at the lineup on the cover here at least, we've got a pretty stacked team. And when you look at it, it's, it's very interesting because I'm just going to rattle off the characters that are on the cover of X-Men number one. So we have Cyclops, of course, Jean Grey, that's Marvel Girl is her official designation. Uh, we have Rachel Summers. We have the new Young Cable. We have Havoc. We have Corsair. We have Vulcan. And we have Wolverine. Is there one person there who doesn't fit? You're right. It's Vulcan. No, I'm kidding. It's Wolverine. It's obviously Wolverine. This team is like a Summer's Grey uh, squad, just with Wolverine kind of thrown in there, probably at the behest of Marvel uh, just wanting a book to have Wolverine in. Um, but I'm not going to complain about it. I'm really excited about this team. This is, uh, we're talking one, two, we're talking at least three generations of the Summers clan, uh, included in this team, just on the cover team alone. And I'm sure that that's going to expand, uh, switch up throughout the time here. I'm really excited. This book is going to be really, really good. Uh, having Lenil Francis Yu on the, uh, 
on the art duties is just fantastic. I'm really excited about it. And uh, I'm just really excited about this book, guys. But it is not my big book of the week. And why is that, you ask? Because another book is coming out this week. Another Superman book is coming out this week. Not Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen. Not Superman Year One, number three of three. It is... And I've been waiting so long to say this. My big book of the week is Superman Smashes the Clan, issue one of three. This is it. Written by Gene Loon Yang with art by Guri Hiru. Um, this, I talked about this months ago when this book was announced. Uh, this is a modern comic retelling of the... Uh, Superman versus the Ku Klux Klan storyline that they did on the Superman radio show way, 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 way back, decades ago. And I am so excited for this. I'm, I'm absolutely giddy at the prospect of picking this book up. I cannot wait. Let's jump into the synopsis and then we'll talk about it a little bit. The year is 1946, and the Lee family has moved from Metropolis's Chinatown to the center of the bustling city. While Dr. Lee is greeted warmly in his new position at the Metropolis Health Department, his two kids, Roberta and Tommy, are more excited about being closer to their famous hero, Superman. While Tommy adjusts to the fast pace of the city, Roberta feels out of place, as she tries and fails to fit in with the neighborhood kids. As the Lees try to adjust to their new lives, an evil is stirring in Metropolis. The Ku Klux Klan. When the Lee family awakens one night to find a burning cross on their lawn, they consider leaving town. But the Daily Planet offers a reward for information on the KKK, and the top two reporters, Lois Lane and Clark Kent, dig into the story. When Tommy is kidnapped by the KKK, Superman leaps into the action with help from Roberta. But Superman is still new to his powers. He hasn't even worked out how to fly yet, so he has to run across town. Will Superman and Roberta reach Tommy in time? Inspired by the 1940s Superman radio serial Clan of the Fiery Cross, Gene Loon Yang presents his personal retelling of the adventures of the Lee family as they team up with Superman to smash the clan. So I'm really excited about this, if you couldn't tell. Um, the whole saga of Superman versus the Clan of the Fiery Cross is not just one of my favorite Superman stories, but it's also one of my favorite stories in general in media. Because if you don't know about this, Superman, uh, the Superman radio serial was used, specifically this series, Clan of the Fiery Cross, was used to air... Uh, Ku Klux Klan secrets out into the world because it was ah I love this story I love this story I would love to do an episode on this I might end up doing an episode just talking about the whole thing uh, further down the line if you would be interested please let me know um, but basically the story is we had a reporter go undercover in the Ku Klux Klan got their secrets and then wanted to basically expose their secrets through the Superman radio serial. And I just, I love that story so much. Um, so I'm really excited about it. If you can't tell, this is my big book of the week. I can't, I don't like calling my shot like this, but I think this might just be the pick of the week of last week for next week. 
So tune in next week to find out on the uh, comics countdown. But to review here, we've got Nightwing number 65, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 4 of 12, Justice League number 34, Captain America number 15, Batman number 81, History of the Marvel Universe number 4 of 6, Flash Forward number 2 of 6, Absolute Carnage number 4 of 5, Superman Year 1 number 3 of 3, X-Men number 1, and Superman Smashes the Clay number one of three if i missed any books if there are any books you're currently reading and you would like me to check out feel free to once again let me know on instagram and on twitter i'm at geeksplained pod that's at geeksplained pod or through email because i'm an old man i still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com i'm just oh man i'm excited about superman smashes the clan And that about does it for this week's episode. But before we go, I do want to uh, insert our Geeksplained mailbag. Uh, I ended up going really long last week uh, talking just about everything that went on with the spoiler-filled Joker review. So I pushed the questions that we got from last week to this week. And so uh, we've got five questions. We've got five uh, write-ins. So thank you very much to those of you who did write in and participated in our Geeksplained mailbag. If you would like to ask me a question, whether it's you know something you always wanted to know, to know about comics, uh, whether you want me to pick one thing over another thing, uh, just get my opinion on something, or if it's just you know a personal question for me, like feel free to ask those. Uh, send them to me on uh, Instagram or Twitter at GeekSplainedPod. That's at GeekSplainedPod, or through email because I'm an old man. I still read emails to GeekSplained at gmail.com. So let's kick this off with a Joker-specific uh, question. Here we have uh, George from Greenville, North Carolina, who asked, "Do you think?" The events of the Joker film were real or fake. And I think he's referring to this theory. We did talk about it uh, last episode that the ending scene where uh, Arthur Fleck is in Arkham Asylum and he's talking to his therapist, thinking about this whole like, um, he laughs at something and they're like, oh, well, what did you, what was going on? And he was just like, I just thought of a joke. You wouldn't think it would, you wouldn't get it. And a lot of people have kind of subscribed to this idea that it's all in his head, that the entire film just happened in this conversation. And uh, I don't really like to to, uh, subscribe to that. So uh, between those two, I like to think that the events of Joker are real. Uh, Whether they all happened in chronological order, I think is up for debate. But I definitely think everything actually happened. And in the ending scene, we are seeing him post the riots in Gotham. Uh, moving on to Tony from Huntington Park, California, right here in California. Uh, he wants to know, should I read Crisis on Infinite Earths before the crossover this year? Um, I think you should. Honestly, I um, I love that book. It is uh, a monolith in itself, really, for what uh, comic book crossovers really should be it is kind of the standard for big event books that's why whenever you bring up the term crisis to comic book fans they immediately know something big's going down so uh there's a reason that crisis on infinite is getting adapted there's a reason it's a big deal there's a reason why uh comic book fans like myself are so excited about the crossover this year so i would definitely read it before you go in there is a lot it is a very dense event, so if you um, 
if you are looking into uh, reading it and if you have any questions, stay tuned because um, something might be coming on that specific topic. So uh, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, Paul from Lancaster, PA, uh, asks a non-comic book question. So thank you for asking our first non-comic book question, Paul. Uh, he asks, what's your favorite horror movie? Um, I will admit to you, as you're listening, I am not a huge horror movie fan. I am not uh, somebody who goes and seeks them out. If there's a cool one that I would that I think I would enjoy, I will definitely watch it. Um, so I like a lot of like psychological thrillers. Um, I've been recently kind of getting into uh, Black Mirror again, which is more, uh, I would say, a, a thriller genre. But um, I've also been really getting back into American Horror Story, kind of catching up on past seasons. But if I had to talk about a favorite like horror movie, uh, because I feel like there's a lot of different, um, just a lot of different uh, categories that could go into. Because like if we're talking about like horror sci-fi, um, it could be uh, Alien or some or Predator, something like that. Uh, but when you talk about like horror movies. I actually really enjoy uh, Cabin in the Woods. It, it it does lean a little bit into science fiction. It is um, just really cool. I didn't expect it. Um, I'm also a big fan of um, really just anything that Sam Raimi does. Uh, even though horror isn't my cup of tea, I can absolutely appreciate Evil Dead as well as Ash vs. Evil Dead. So I like that. Um, yeah, I, I would say probably Cabin in the Woods is my top, though. Uh, moving on to our next question. Uh, John from Arkansas, thanks for writing in, John, asks, should Robin be in Matt Reeves' Batman? Um, I think uh, it's tough. So I, um, I think it depends a lot on where and when they're setting this. Uh, because we do know that Catwoman is going to be appearing now that uh, we know that Zoe Kravitz is going to be taking over the role. Um, we do know that Riddler and Penguin may, will probably be showing up and that um, Long Halloween is a big influence on this. Uh, Robin wasn't in that book. He showed up in the sequel, Dark Victory, which I also love. Um, but I... It depends, because if they want this to be like an Arkham Asylum situation where all of his villains are like established, he's been at this for a while, then absolutely. Um, but if they're going for like a younger Batman who's still in, you know, like a year two, a year three, I would say no. Though I will, I this just came to me, This I just thought of this. I think it would be really interesting if we came to it and Robin's training. If Dick Grayson is in training when we catch up with Batman, because uh, we've never really seen that. We see, a lot of times we see um, Dick getting, or his parents dying, and then him being brought in by Batman. The next thing you know, boom, he's Robin. Uh, Dark Victory does a really good job on this, uh, explaining you know his time in between that. Uh, if you would like me to do a Geek Explained Spotlight on Dark Victory, feel free to request that. I would love to do that book. I love that book just in general. Um, but I would really be interested if they kind of tackled while Bruce is doing this detective work, Robin is training in the background. I think that would be really cool. And then finally, our final question comes to us from Mike in West Virginia. Thanks for writing in, Mike. Uh, he writes, Oh, oh Mike. Oh, I don't like this at all. Um, okay. Mike writes, Which is better, Batman 89 or Batman Returns? That's tough. 
<laughs> um, that's really tough. Uh, because they're both very um, very stylized. They're both by the same creative team, Tim Burton and his uh, his whole horror um, team, as well as featuring one of the best Batman of all time, Michael Keaton, um, which we now know might be showing up in Crisis. I would absolutely die if that happened. But um, see, that's tough because they're also kind of different movies. Uh, Batman Returns really dove into like how dark. Uh, Tim Burton could go. I mean, the Penguin, just in that film, played by Dan Vito. You know, he bites some guy's nose off. Uh, he talks about having sex with uh, a lot of people. <laughs> and uh, Batman 89 has, you know, the Joker. It has Jack Nicholson's Joker. So um, it's tough. I also love Michelle Pfeiffer's Catwoman in Batman Returns. But if I had to make a choice between those two, I would probably go with Batman 89. Uh, just because we do get the Batman vs. Joker story, we get another Joker origin story. Uh, one of the weaker Joker origin stories, I think, making him just like a mob guy who goes crazy is not as interesting to me as, say, like the Arthur Fleck version or especially the Telltale version that we talked about in this episode. Um... But I love Michael Keaton in the role of Batman. I love Jack Nicholson in the role of the Joker. Uh, Tim Burton really had a great eye for making the gothic aspects of that character and of Gotham itself make that city feel alive. So I really enjoyed that. And if you enjoyed Batman 89, um, you might be looking forward to something a little bit down the line uh, in a future episode. I won't spoil it, but uh, it's it, it, it might be coming soon. So um, that is going to do it for this week's Geek Explained Mailbag. Once again, thank you to everyone who wrote in. If you would like to be included in the mailbag for next week, once again, feel free to write to me either through email, geeksplained at gmail.com, or feel free to tweet me or send me a DM at at GeekSplainedPod, that's at GeekSplainedPod on both Instagram and Twitter. And that is it for this week's episode. Um, Joketober rolls on. This was chapter three, and I, uh, I've i just been really enjoying it. I've been really enjoying the feedback that I've been getting from you. You guys seem to really enjoy Joker content. Um, so for those of you who have jumped on this week, it is not always going to be like this. I hate to break this to you. But... Um, if you like what we do here, make sure you give us a rating and uh, give us a review. I love getting reviews. Um, I would love to read some on air, so feel free to do that. Uh, especially giving us, you know, five star rating on uh, iTunes really helps boost our signal to find listeners just like you. Um, and yeah, I'm looking forward to next week. Joketober chapter four or part four uh, is going to be our Geek Explained Spotlight for the month and we are going to be looking at batman white knight love this book love the story really excited to talk about it next week and um i will just leave you guys with saying that i really hope that you check out uh my shameless plugs from earlier in the episode you know check out one night in october you can find it on amazon um 
I'm really excited. We're all really excited about this. You can find it in both hard copy and you can also find it in video on demand. Just go on your Amazon Prime account. You can rent it or buy it. It is not expensive. Um, and you're supporting indie filmmaking, which really helps us out. And also check out uh, episode two of the Dark Chronicles series on YouTube. Uh, the episode is The Relic that I uh, was lucky enough to be a part of and star in. And then also check out their first episode, The Possession, as well. Give them a subscribe on YouTube to uh, stay up to date with the rest of their episodes going on this month. And give us a subscribe. Subscribe to us. Um, I love finding that we're getting new subscribers every week. I love that. I love interacting with you guys. And uh, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to talking about White Knight next week. I love this book. This was my uh, surprise hit uh, when it comes to comics. I've been loving Curse of the White Knight. It got off to kind of a shaky start for me, but I've been really enjoying it. Um, after that, but I think honestly, Batman White Knight is an instant classic and I can't wait to talk about it next week but that is going to be next week same geek time same geek channel and for now for geek explain this is eric zana thank you very much for listening and we will see you next time